Hey there, everyone. From beautiful Fort Collins, Colorado, halfway between Cheyenne and Denver, and 5,003 feet above sea level, I'm Jeff Haber, and you're listening to No Bed of Roses. No Bed of Roses is brought to you by Conexus. Maybe your company is creating video content or you're a brand looking for that coveted direct connection with viewers. Maybe you're an established YouTube creator or you're just starting out. Conexus Interactive Web Video Solutions enables viewers while watching your videos to simply tap on the items they're interested in, directly connecting them to the merchant's shopping cart to easily purchase those items. This all happens without ever leaving the video experience and without ever leaving the site where they started watching the video in the first place. Connexus shoppable video content works using any browser on any device. No download, no plugin, nothing to install. Interactive video like you've always wanted it. Find out more at connexus.com. That's K-E-N-X-U-S dot com. Today's episode of No Bed of Roses is brought to you in part by Belgian Beer Me, beer tours specializing in, you guessed it, beer tours of Belgium. What could be more fun than going to the home of Trappist beer? Nothing. That's what you'll visit some of the finest breweries, beer cafes, abbeys, and beer festivals in Belgium. All tours begin and end in Belgium and range between 6 and 10 days. Tours are led by Belgian beer expert Stu Stewart, who has been leading beer tours for more than 10 years and is an honorary knight of the Brewers MASH staff. That's right, a beer tour led by a flippin' knight. For details and a complete list of tours, visit belgianbeerme.com. And be sure to follow Belgian Beer Me on Facebook and Instagram. Welcome back, everyone. How many times have you had a super frustrating experience and thought, man, somebody should invent something that Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. Frustration like that has been the impetus for innovation throughout the ages. And today's guest, Aidan Fitzpatrick, CEO of London-based Reincubate, shares a few stories of his journey leveraging his varied frustrations into a company that has twice won the Queen's Award for Enterprise, Britain's highest business honor. Here's Adrian. I mean, I'm nearly 24/7 at this point, Jeff. So, oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, six six thirty. Yeah, there's there's a there's a couple more hours left in me. Right, I would right. Say. Uh, yeah, right, right. Is it is it 24/7? Are you are things just crazy for you? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, a lot of numbers 24/7, but we've gone zero to sixty. Let's put them together. Um, That's good. Are we talking kilometers, or are we talking? Should we talk kilometers or miles an hour? What should we? Because we have let's, to convert, don't we? I think, I think that's friendlier, friendlier for you, isn't it? Is it? Okay. Are you in London? I, I am. That's the Harry Potter accent, love of the Queen, all that sort of thing. 
Well, uh, we have the we have the the prince now, man. So game on. Okay. okay? Yes. In lovely Montecito, yeah. where He's I, up, I would very much like to be. Me, you and me both, brother. We were my uh, my family and I just uh, we just took a road trip to L.A. And went up to Montecito and we, for years, Aiden tried to figure out how can we live here? How can we get here? And I just, I didn't have the Harry Potter wand to do the become Oprah. Bling. Mm -hmm. I couldn't do that. So uh, have you visited? Have you ever been? My wife and I spend about three months in the States uh, a year. Or oh, that's the, that we have been doing that. But obviously the last couple of years, we, we haven't been allowed in. Uh, so, <laughs> well, you, that's because of your attitude, Aiden. Okay, you just you need to change <laughs> your your attitude in general. Is uh, everybody's talking about it? It's very bad. Yeah, it's very bad. Yeah. So yeah. when you come, do you stay in Montecito? Should I start hating you right now? Because we got off to a good start, but I think it's rapidly going downhill. Yeah, we we stayed in Montecito for a couple of weeks. We we've stayed in Santa Barbara. Normally, I'm. I mean, as a, as a tech CEO, I'm supposed to be up in the valley, right? I'm supposed to be in, in San Francisco or in what I've heard described as beautiful womanless man, Jose. Uh, I, I don't know if that's still true, but I tend to gravitate a little bit further south uh, in California, uh, away from the tech types and towards the warmth. And I found essentially if you're at Santa Barbara or south of that, that's, that's my sweet spot. So I like L.A. Yeah. very much and, and I like yeah. that, that part of town. Going up and yeah, down totally. on the Amtrak. I've always, the Amtrak seems to be a deeply un-American thing, or at least I get that impression when I use it, but I love it. Well, well because you guys get rail, Aiden. You understand rail. <laughs> Europe gets rail. It's Euro rail. You know, American kids would go. I, I didn't do that, but when we when we traveled around Europe, my wife and I were just amazed at the trains in, in Italy. And just, it's just they work, and, and there's a system. And with Amtrak... You better pack a lunch for a week because you never know what's going to happen. Yeah. Not that I don't love the idea of it going up and down the coastline. And I mean, it's it's a romantic notion. But have you had good experiences? As a non-American, my love of Americana is different. I'm big into Americana. And, and to me, like stuff happening to me in America fits into that. And I am game for it. I, I remember I took... Is it? I, I took one of those tiny little private buses up the I-5 between San Francisco and L.A. one time. Because I've driven the coast, and everyone says, drive the coast, don't get the Amtrak, don't get in the little bus. Getting in that little bus, everyone's like, oh, we're going to get extorted, it's going to take forever, it's going to be a terrible experience, there won't be toilets, it will be hot, there won't be Wi-Fi. I loved it. That was one of the best things ever to happen to me. I love we're those. Very we're very complainy. <laughs> Have you noticed this? In the Americans, we're, we're very high maintenance and very complainy. Not British at all. Stiff upper lip, that kind of thing. We just, we don't, we're very complainy. I don't know. I, I think you guys are much, much more positive than we are. Really? Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Mm. Absolutely. It's not one of these luxury coaches that goes up the five with Wi-Fi and the whole deal. This is just a, no. a shuttle kind of thing. Is that yeah. what you're... Yeah, yeah. Uh -huh. Like you, you stand around on the street at like 6 a.m. behind a particular hotel somewhere in San Francisco yeah. and this thing shows up and, you know, and then something happens to you for like seven or eight hours. And uh, yeah, I loved it. I loved it. 
this is the this is the British adventurer spirit. This is you still have it. It's in your it's in your DNA. You don't need the pith helmet, but you just go. You're right. ready for you're ready for adventure. You missed your trip with your wife to the states as a tech CEO. Is it reincubate that is your primary focus right now? Yes, that that is uh, the day job and also a lot of the night job. I would right. say I have a, a, a small investment fund that I do a very little bit with. What I'm going to say now is, is going to be disappointing to you. I don't use video for my podcasts. I typically uh, yep. don't. And one of the reasons that I don't, and you can weigh in on this, I'm, I'm sort of, I don't know if I'm even conflicted. I think I've kind of made my mind up, but I'm a, I'm a romantic about, about what radio used to mean to us and how we used to listen to each other as opposed to looking at each other getting caught up and distracted in the visual who's shiny whatever it is or while wow, Aiden is a lot more handsome than I am another reason to hate him uh, any of those things uh, I I find you know we're so we're so into video and a lot of what's going on now is we've forgotten how to listen that's why I typically don't use use video. You've done a bunch of interviews. What's your take? What do you think? Crikey. There's a lot to think about. I, I, I think that there's a lot to be said about a, a, a beautiful audio podcast. I, I, I really do. And I think differentiating with quality is, 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 is a good thing to do. I totally see it. I mean, I, as you said, I, I've, I do quite a few podcasts. I enjoy the opportunity to do them. I, I think the tooling is still coming together. There's a lot to come. There's a lot to come, both with audio and with video. You know, it's very obvious some of the stuff people are talking about with video, perhaps. But, you know, we're just hearing about spatial audio more uh, from Apple. Uh, I think there's a lot happening with microphone quality. You know, you, you still see a lot of blogs and kind of podcasting advice sites saying, hey, use a condenser mic, use a Blue Yeti. It'll cost you a hundred bucks. You'll sound great. You know, it, it's not going to happen. And I think, you know, you sound good, Jeff. People, most people don't sound good. I think it will be a pleasure listening, listening to you on this podcast. Was tech your thing from the beginning? What, what, and, and where did you grow? Did you grow up in London? I've been around a bit. I was born in Brussels, in Belgium, uh, which is where chips and chocolate and beer comes from, apparently. Why this early travel? Mom, dad, somebody, uh, somebody's moving for business. What's going on? Yeah, my, my, my father was an ad man, so he was traveling around a lot. My, my parents were, were, you know, both British, but um, my father became a New Zealand citizen and my mother didn't. Uh, and I ended up back in the, in the UK with her in, in the south of England. Ad man, like madman, ad man kind of thing, old school? Exactly. Or do you remember any of the campaigns that he was working on or that he worked on? I don't know. I, I, I didn't see a lot of him. I, I do know that as a baby... I was uh, on an advert on New Zealand TV, I believe for Wall Sausages, where I was essentially uh, a baby in a nappy eating these sausages. And that was really the thrust of the advert. I've never seen this advert, uh, but I understand it aired. Uh, I would like to see it. So there you go. There's a challenge on for everyone now that we can, <laughs> we can Google Aiden in a nappy eating a sausage. Was your mom working? Was she in advertising as well? No, she, she was a teacher. She returned to the UK as a teacher. What did she teach? Uh, so what we call CDT, which is probably not called CDT in the States, but it's craft design and technology. I suppose ranges from putting wood together to kind of doing design, kind of, uh, you know, CAD and stuff like that, all the way through to computers. It was sort of a, a, a mishmash of things that involved 
really design and creation. I, I suspect now it's sort of split out in the curriculum into many different things. So you have this interesting multinational, artistic, techie. I mean, this is you've got a good mashup going on here. So <laughs> that that's that's pretty fertile ground right there. What Aiden was starting to excite you as a kid. I sort of kept myself to myself because I was a bit of an outsider. And uh, I mean, having a Kiwi accent was, was pretty unusual. But yeah, I, I read a lot and I spent a lot of time by myself. I eventually, I think I was about 11 years old, I befriended the school geek in the library who used to write programs on the school computers, which I knew nothing about. And I was just bitten by the bug. I thought, I want to write programs too. And he taught me how to do that. And these were um, uh, BBC and Acorn computers. Uh, so it was like basic. C plus and basic? Yeah. Is that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, you know, graduated from that to, to Pascal. But I was just entranced. I could do this stuff and I could make machines do things. Did it come easily to you, Aiden, once you started? Was it just a language that you were open to learning that just sort of flowed for you? Or was it a little bit, hey, this is cool, but this kind of, this I have to work at this. How did it go for you? I'm a bit all or nothing. And pretty much from that point, there was nothing else in my life. I mean, I didn't have a computer at home, so I think it was a couple of years before I got one. So I spent a lot of time in the library during and after school. It was all I wanted to do. I was just like, you know, I guess I, I met him and kind of got into that at 11. I think by the time I was 13, I knew... All I wanted to do in life was become a software engineer. I did not want to continue at school. I didn't want to go to college. I didn't want to do anything like that. I just wanted to write code. Thank you very much. That was that was it. <laughs> so you got this and you it, it just bang. It clicked, Aiden. And as you said, this singular focus, this is what you wanted to do. No siblings, it's just it's just you. Just me, yeah. It's just just me me and my mum together in the UK without kind of a lot around us. And uh, I, I found my thing. Your mom was encouraging about this. She supported you. Yeah, I mean, you know, she she was uh, raising me as a as a single mother and, and and had a job, but you know, she she got me a computer as as, as soon as she could, and, and that was a very powerful thing. And then, in maybe '96, she got us an internet connection. I mean, it wasn't an internet connection. I was dialing up to bulletin board systems, which, you know, every night they synchronized your mail with something else. And so I got very interested in that. So the, the internet started to join on to writing code. I mean, I think I could have been doing worse, worse things. So I think she, she saw that I was very into something and it was possibly unclear what would, what would become of computers anyway. Where's the equilibrium? What is good? What is right? What is healthy right now? Should every kid learn coding? Well, I, I suppose one part is, you know, is it good to be online a lot? And is it safe for children to be online? Yeah, it's such a hard question to answer. I, I was online a lot and there were fewer people online. And I think you could argue it was safer. I was on a community for an author. I was on a mailing list, which I don't think mailing lists really exist anymore. Uh, and at the age of 17, I... Uh, found a girlfriend who was in Canada and she was also 17 and I saved up my money and at the age of 17 I went on my own to Canada to meet her uh, and I remember I met someone else who was on the list he was in Toronto he was a grown man so I went I flew to Toronto from London to meet a grown man 
Okay, remember, he picked me up. Hold hold it right there, fella. (laughs) We can't just skate through that. You, this is every parent's nightmare. I'm just listening to you go, right? I I flew to Toronto to meet a grown man. Was mom okay with this? Did she know? What What was the deal with that? Yeah, I mean, I had, you know, because I had a parent in New Zealand, which, again, is on the exact opposite side of the world of the UK, I had flown twice to New Zealand unaccompanied, uh, I think at the age of 12 and at 15. Uh, and of course, you know, when you're that age, there are sort of airline stewards and things that look out for you. But I was, again, a bit of an all or nothing child. And if I was going to do it, I was going to do it. And my mother was always deeply concerned, but also supportive. And, you know, I, I found my calling in this community of people and I made many friends around the world. And I thought, look, the first trip is going to be to Canada. I'm going to meet a bunch of them. I can't remember exactly what I told my mother. But I imagine it was pretty good to uh, have let her, for her to let me do that. But I wanted to meet a few of them. And ultimately, I, you know, I, I wanted to meet my, my girlfriend, uh, who I hadn't met in person. But I remember I, I was picked up by this chap um, who went by the, the sort of the internet nickname Shadow. I, I should add that for the purposes of this story. Holy mama, you can't write this. Okay. He, he was driving an F-150, which... To, to a European, I mean, this, this is a very big car. It's, it's about twice the size of the biggest car we have in Europe. It's, it's like, uh, but I remember I got in his F-150, which was the largest vehicle I'd ever seen. It's bigger than any boat I'd ever seen. And we went to his house in Toronto and he showed me his sword collection. And I remember at the time thinking, huh, this is something that could have gone wrong. This is an experience that I will... <laughs> I will always be able to remember being in Shadow's front room in Toronto with him showing me his sword. Shadow's, if I pitch this as a show, nobody would, they would go, never happen. I mean, it's just not going to, are you familiar with the American TV show Dexter by any chance? Would you, do you know about that with the psychopathic uh, I, I, killer? Who, I yes. do, yeah. He, he was a nice he was guy. Cool. I met many lovely people and, and I had a great time. But the reason I say that is, you, you know, I'm sure it's harmful for children to be online a lot. I think there's a lot of harmful content on Reddit, on YouTube, on mailing lists. I think there are a lot of bad actors out there. I'm not sure it's any riskier than it was. Uh, I, I, I get, but, and at, at the same time, I think it would be deeply unhelpful in many ways for one's children not to be able to access the internet, just as it would have been unhelpful for me not to be able to access the internet. So I, I think it's a question without an easy answer. It seems even as somebody who's gone through that, there is that conflict still because we know that there is all this upside. We know that there is an amazing world out there. Yeah, I've talked with a buddy of mine who is a recurring guest on the show about travel and just how important travel is and not having the ability to travel for this last year and a half. Socially, it's 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 damaging and it shuts us down even further. So there's that upside of just this global community. And of course, then the inherent risk that comes along with people like Shadow, although I don't want to disparage Shadow because he was a cool Perfectly sword cool collecting F-150 driving guy. How did that end? Did you, you see, you see the sword collection and then he says, do you want to go to lunch? What, I mean, what, yeah. you want to play? What Something happens? like that. I mean, uh, it, it was a long time ago now. I, I spent a perfectly agreeable afternoon with him. I think I met some other people. Uh, you know, I, I headed up. I, I spent some time with my girlfriend. All was, all, all was good. And, you know, at a later point I went to New York and I met some people. I remember, 
meeting a couple of guys at uh, is it Grand Central Station. I was one of the younger members of the community, so the odds were generally when I was at meetings, I was a a, a teenage boy meeting older men and women, and the internet being what it was, they, they would they would generally chaps. I mean, it is stuff that, as one gets a bit older, sounds a little bit scarier, but it was totally innocent and totally fine. Somehow, looking back, well, actually, for me, Aiden, somehow looking back, I'm always amazed that I'm alive. So uh, that's that's a, how how did I survive that one? How did I survive that one? The common thread there, the reason you were in this group was for coders, though. Is that what it was? A coding community or no? No, it, it was actually a, a community around an author because I, I think that that was a really big part of my life. Those sort of mailing lists. I was in music communities. I was in uh, you know book communities. Uh, because uh, coding coding was all of sort of my day job. So I think a lot of the social stuff was maybe less about coding, but more about the internet and, and emerging communities on the internet and the different forms that they took. What's the next big thing for you coding-wise that happens? In the UK, you can't just leave school uh, much as much as it would be nice to. Uh, but I ended up uh, not doing tremendously academically well at the computing uh, courses because they they weren't really sort of on the same wavelength as the sort of computer stuff I was doing, uh, but I ended up working for the school's IT department, administering the machines, uh, sorting out their internet connection, uh, building their website, uh, and then I did uh, the same at college where I was working for the college doing IT. In the UK, college isn't university; it's the two years before university. So, and I was sort of compelled to do that. Uh, and then for me, it was, it was work experience. So when you're, I guess, 15 or 16 years old, you sort of get kicked out of school for two weeks and you've got to go and do something in industry. And I ended up finding a company that built 3D modeling software. So they, they sort of did CAD. They, they, they did designs for railways and stuff like that. And it was a proper software engineering company full of proper software engineers. And I remember I went the first day, I think it was all C++, and I came home in tears because I didn't know C++ and it was bewilderingly hard. Uh, but from the second day on, I, I loved it. And essentially every school holiday after that, I worked. And I started working weekends as well, building websites and stuff like that. So it really came all consuming. We're geeking out just a little bit. So for CAD, for people who don't know, computer-aided design, CAD CAM, right? Computer-aided manufacturing. Is that, am I saying yeah. it correctly? Yeah, yeah, In C++, you go home and what? You crack open a book, C++, C++ for <laughs> dummies. What, what, do you, what do you do so that you go back day two and you're fired yeah. up and you jump back into the deep end of the pool and you swim? What do you do? So, so I had the books. Software was a bit different then. So I had, I don't know what version it was, but there was something called Microsoft Visual C++, I think, God, I version 4. Yeah. And it came with books. And it was maybe seven or eight books. And they, they were probably two foot tall worth of books. And I remember the smell of them. And they were beautiful. And they were intimidating. Uh, and I read them, basically. or I mean, some of them were references, but I sort of, I read the narrative elements and did my best. Uh, but there was a really big learning curve on that. Yeah, I mean, this isn't where you can get onto Khan Academy and just go, you know, watch a video and go, thanks, Sal, now I get programming. That's not what's happening. No. You, had a, you had to get this out of a textbook. I mean, what, what are you going to do? It's what I wanted to do. Uh, it was figure it out, or there wasn't really another option, so... I figured it out. And ultimately, I left college uh, as soon as I could, uh, just before I was 18. 
and went to work for uh, what was then a big American dot com where I was employed by an American boss who, fantastic guy, love him, still have a relationship with him, but he did not know what my qualifications were. He didn't know what college was. You know, he, he saw in me someone who liked to code and hired me on the spot. Uh, and for a long time, I was, yeah, very much the youngest in the company, which was a, a source of merriment for all, probably apart from me. That sounds kind of fairy tale. Can we say what company it was? Yeah, I mean, it, it, the, the company was... Um, at the time called ZDNet, before it had been called Ziff Davis, and then it became CNET, and then it became CBS. And now I think someone bought CBS, I'm not entirely sure. But we, we had uh, GameSpot.com and News.com and Download.com. It was an endless amount of code to be written. It was the dot-com boom. They were just paying people to write code uh, for code's sake uh, at the time as well. There wasn't, there wasn't much of a focus on making money. It was just about building technology. And for me, that was perfect. They didn't need to pay me. They did. But yeah, I just go up to London, write code all day, get home late, do it again. <laughs> I want to go back for a second, Aiden, so because it does sound fairy tale that a young, you know, young guy connects with the, was, was the founder or the CEO of the company? My boss was, I, I think, one of the best engineers that they'd had in the States. And they said, why don't we send the best engineer in the States to go and be God in Europe? Because, you know, what do the Europeans need? They, they need an American software engineer to tell them how to do it. And, and obviously that, <laughs> you know, I was right at the bottom of the pile. But amongst the adults, uh, I, I think there was a lot of sort of politics that went on. Because surprisingly, people running European publishing companies maybe don't want to be told what to do by American software engineers. Hmm, but I didn't that. care. I just wanted to be told what to do. <laughs> so so I loved it. But, but they, they essentially sent him over and... My understanding was some people have told us the internet's going to be big, so do whatever it takes to build a lot of stuff on the internet and spend whatever it takes as well. So I, you know, he hired a bunch of other people and a bunch of contractors, and, and I just had this amazing experience where I couldn't have been any luckier at the start of my career because I was surrounded by these awesome people who knew a lot of stuff. And I just made them cups of tea and wrote code and watched what they were doing. Did you feel yourself as a young guy, did you feel the internet is, in fact, going to be big? Yes. <laughs> you knew it? Did you, did you know oh, it? yes. Yeah, no, I, I, was, I was convinced. I, was, I mean, I didn't want to be anywhere other than on the internet. Uh, yeah. It is cool that you were there. What happens on the other side of that for you now? We were in an office that was probably appropriate for 350 people, and I, I think we filled it up. Uh, and then, you know, the dot-com boom was a game of two halves. So we played the other half. And, you know, a lot of that involved sort of having only 60 people on this floor and being able to simultaneously play several games of cricket and a game of five-a-side football in, in parts of the office floor that weren't occupied. And a lot of people got laid off. I think we had five rounds of redundancy. Uh, I, I think being young... People were sort of nice to me and I was relatively inexpensive. Uh, I, I sort of emerged from, you know, I'd, I'd started, I was barely 18. I was an, a software engineer. At, at 21, I was the European development manager and I was sort of a, a child, as it were, responsible for teams of adults in Munich and Paris and London building these websites, which was very much not down to my talent, but down to sort of my having the fortune to be in the right place at the right time and not having anything better to do. So I did my best at that. Uh, a lot of cartoons and jokes about 
rising to or beyond the level of one's competence, which which I certainly did. And of course, my level of competence did change, although it, it sort of tracked behind my level of responsibility. Did you ever suffer from imposter syndrome while you were in the middle of all that? Or were you just, okay, I'll just ride this ride <laughs> until somebody figures it out? Uh, I, I think I think the imposter syndrome came when I was a little bit older and a bit more self-aware. So I, I've certainly had plenty of that, but but maybe less of it then. I think I was I was maybe not as self-conscious uh, and was more single-minded. Which is that blessing that allows us to just do those things that we we would now look back and go, I can't do that. I, you couldn't do that. That's that. That doesn't seem. No, I'm not qualified. Right. Then you just you just go. Sure, give me the keys, man. I'll drive. Right? I mean, the just past do. is a is a foreign country, Jeff, and they they do yeah. things differently there. When does reincubate happen? Is is that further down the road? Uh, were there other ventures before that? Yeah, it, it's, it's a long way down the road. I mean, I, I ended uh -huh. up, I ended up essentially going to work as a CTO with a variety of startup companies. Uh, and the CTO, it's the chief technical officer. It's basically the person that looks after the programmers, uh, but is still probably a bit technical. So I did that with a bunch of startups, and I found that I loved working with founders. And founders were new to me. These are these people who were interested in money, but were much more interested in a vision and in a product and in the act of creation and in how users experienced their product. And I found over time founders left or got fired or sold out and replaced by sort of professional CEOs who were driven by money uh, or driven by a board. And, and so I just saw that there was this pattern matching process for me where I loved working with founders. And I think over... A long enough period of time, I just came to the conclusion that I've probably got to do this myself. And that's really how it began. And it began through me having a job, but building a lot of things in my evenings and weekends, putting them on the internet and seeing what people had to say about them. And if you do that enough, or if I did that enough, uh, eventually there was something that was people were going to resonate with to, to one level or another. If there was a different way I could I could build technology, uh, then I would do that. And sort of, if the consequence meant that this involved a business, then so be it. But let's not talk much about that. Let's just focus on the code. I think that that was sort of the mindset that I had. Maybe it was a necessary evil to be able to create things. You're just building. You're just building. You're okay. You're making a living, and you're doing this for the. It sounds like for Aiden. You're doing this for the joy of of creating and of programming. Is that right? Well, I, I joked about art, about artistry before. I'm, I'm definitely not an artist, but I, I think I am a creator. And I, I suppose if you want to be able to create what you want to create in the way you want, it is helpful to control your own destiny and kind of control some of the economic levers around that. And, and yeah, to, to, to that extent, if, if, you, if you build the business and control a business, one can do that more than, uh, you know... As I was before, as a software engineer or a CTO, building someone else's vision. And what was that thing that you built where you went, "Ooh, there, this this might be something here." So I got the first iPhone in two thousand and seven, and I had had one of those Motorola, beautiful Motorola Razor phones, those silvery flip phones, and I had painstakingly put I don't know a hundred contacts, two hundred contacts into that. I'd, I'd got them out and I'd put them on my iPhone. I think with manual entry. And when the software update for iOS 2 came out, which, which I think you had to pay for, it basically erased all of my data. And I was not very happy about that. And I thought, there's no way I'm typing these contacts in again. 
So essentially, I, I set myself a weekend project of finding out where the heck my contacts had been uh, and getting them back on my phone. So I wrote, I wrote a script that did that. And I think two months later, there was an update to iOS 2.1 and it screwed me over again. So I, I, I used my script again. I got my contacts back and I, I put it online and it was a script written in a computer language called Python. And so I, I just put this script on my website and said, look, it's called iPhone Backup Extractor. If you lose data from your iPhone, this can get it back. Basically, within no time, I was getting about 30 emails a night from people saying, what is a Python and can you help me get my data back? And that was really sort of the beginning of the feeling that something was working. People kept emailing me about this iPhone Backup Extractor and I would go home every night after a very long day and reply to 30 people, uh, do it my evenings and weekends. And after a month or two, when you were doing this weekend project, when the first download just blew your contacts to smithereens, mm. were you a CTO working with the founders still at that point, or had you had already moved on? Yeah, so I, I was I was a CTO uh, working with a founder. Uh, I think I was probably transitioning that and about to go into uh, another role because um, I was trying to work with many different startups at the same time. Uh, that was so I said that was two thousand and seven. There's a company called Y Combinator and another one called Betaworks where they were kind of working with founders to build kind of a lot of private equity positions in fascinating startups that would become high growth. And essentially at that point, I was trying to do that. That's why my company's called Reincubate because the idea was it was going to be like a virtual incubator. But I was essentially a sort of a glorified consultant. I got the model wrong. I was trying to help people with their early stage technology and fundraising. What I didn't realize is that if you're a founder and you need help with early stage technology and fundraising, you're probably not the right founder to back, uh, which was a lesson I hadn't learned, but everyone else had. <laughs> so hold on. So anybody who's a startup person is listening. So if you're, you're you, you sense that if, if you're a founder, if you came upon a founder who needed help with fundraising and developing tech, that was not the horse to bet on? I think if you're building a technology startup, and you don't either sort of natively have the tech yourself or the money yourself or the ability to do that. Those are sort of fundamental bread and butter aptitudes you need. And I think if you're reliant on sort of outsourcing them or bringing someone external in to help, it's probably not, it's probably not going to go amazingly well. And I wouldn't want to knock anyone in that position. That's, that's just what I found. You've made this adjustment and is it all about making this product scale? I ended up sort of moving from that and, and starting uh, working with this rocket ship company as a contract CTO, which I did for about three years. A literal rocket ship company? Uh, I, well, it went like a rocket ship, but it was actually a bicycle company. <laughs> oh, okay. Uh, so other end of the spectrum. <laughs> But I'd built this iPhone backup extractor and it had started to gain momentum. I didn't know what it meant. And I signed for a three-month contract with these guys to help them trade through Christmas. And then I ended up investing and I ended up staying there for a couple of years until it sold. So I just kind of, I got myself in this situation where I had to remain with this company until we sold it. So in the meantime, I had to find a way to figure out what to do with iPhone backup extractor in my evenings and weekends. So it was a it's a, you know, uh, like a love triangle of technology and startups and bits and pieces. So, so, so what I did is, you know, I was getting all these emails and I thought, what is, I have, a, I have a very important job to do with this company. How can I get rid of these emails? And I thought, what I'll do is I'll, I'll change my website. And rather than giving people an open source Python script, I'll say, look, if you send me 25 bucks with PayPal, I will 
compile this code specially to have your name in it and send it to you. So essentially I went from giving a script away for free to selling people a program. And I thought, you know, the rule of conversion rate being what it is, you know, maybe 3% will convert. I'm not doing a good job of presenting it, probably fewer. But essentially what it means is I'll probably only get one or two emails a week and I can deal with them on Sunday. Uh, and essentially what happened is I was wrong. It didn't make a difference. And in the first 18 months, I was sent about a million bucks with PayPal, which it meant I went from one problem to another problem because I was overemployed. 18 months, I think you said, a million dollars and PayPal with real yep. money into your account? Yep, yep. I, it was 99% margin, which, I mean, margin only sort of goes down from that. <laughs> what are your thoughts at that point? What are you thinking? Uh, well, I've, I've never been a very money-oriented person, but I am very excited about creation and seeing a product resonate with people. So, you know, my, my, my most pressing issue is what on earth am I going to do? Because obviously that, you know, that million bucks is over about 18 months, as I said. So it wasn't all there on day one. But, you know, it started doing, you know, a couple of thousand bucks in, in a very short amount of time. So I realized that I needed someone to look after this for me. And I, I reached out to a friend that I'd worked with before. And, and he agreed essentially to kind of look after customers and, and steer what had really by default become a business whilst I continue work on my day job and, and, until we ultimately sold that company and I could return and focus on this. Which is the Rocket Bicycle Company. Exactly, the Rocket Bicycle what was, Company. What was, what was unique about Rocket Bicycles? What, 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 what made that bike company so successful? Was there, any, was there a special sauce? Was there something about it? Yeah, I mean, it, it was built by a couple of really smart chaps uh, who had a great sense of uh, values and were very, very focused on customer experience. So they built this amazing company, uh, essentially where they sold bikes and triathlon sporting goods around the world. Uh, and customers loved them. And, you know, one of the things is when you treat customers very well, they say nice things about you to other people and you end up with more customers. Uh, and, and essentially, we, we did this around the world at that company. Uh, it grew very strongly in the UK, and then ultimately it grew strongly around the rest of the world. Uh, and we priced very fairly. So we essentially sold goods for, uh, you know, the same price around the world, which was not something done in the industry uh, at, at that time. There was a lot of international price fixing where wholesalers or retailers would say, you have to sell this product for this item in this territory. which meant this that market. Right. Yeah, which, which meant that if you went to some countries, something would be uh, much, much more expensive than it otherwise would be. And, you know, international price fixing isn't illegal, uh, but it is frowned upon. And, uh, you, you know, I think if you don't engage in price fixing, consumers generally like you more. And we did not engage in price fixing. So that sort of helped. I was thinking about also cricket on that floor. Did, did you guys use a Nerf cricket ball or, uh, or, or paper? What did you, because you could have sent something right through the window there. What did you do for cricket? When just going yeah, back I think, I think it was probably a hard ball, I must say. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. really? Oh, yeah, um, really? Yeah. Yeah, we just, got, we just got lucky. Uh, and I think, you know, with, with your earlier question, I, I think I have been very lucky. I think, you know, in, in that stage of my career, I was often the youngest and the least talented and, possibly the most fortunate to, to be working with people who were more talented than I was. Uh, I, I think there was a great set of founders behind that business. And then there was a great management team. Uh, and things just came together. 
uh, it was very difficult. Uh, I remember I did, uh, you know, I had, a, I had my iPhone, but I also had a company BlackBerry. And I remember it took me some time not to flinch when I heard a BlackBerry ringtone afterwards. It was, you know, it was a trading business. We grew it. We sold it to private equity. There are, you know, external pressures, but it was a good team and good people. And we did, we did the right stuff and it was a great business. And I believe it still is. A little bit of PTSD, but it seems to have dissipated <laughs> for the most part. It's okay. It doesn't kill you, makes you stronger. Exactly. So your buddy is your buddy at this point is running, and is it named now Reincubate at this point? Yes, Aiden, as, yeah, it is. Yeah, okay, all right. And he's running it, and uh, and it, it continues to. You did that million in eighteen months. It continues to grow off of this one iPhone recovery application. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, that, and, and that was really the, the, the start of it. I mean, there were there's a lot of existential doubt. Will Apple change the way things work? Do we need to change the product? How can we make it available for people on Macs? Because it was for Windows users at the time, uh, and and so there was a there was a whole journey there to to go through. How does Camo come about? Camo came about for a variety of reasons. One is I like to build stuff that we've talked about, and I have a long list of things that I want to build. Uh, and every year I try and secretly build one or two of them or build a little prototype. And I'm always very self-conscious about this because when you've got a trading business, building a prototype seems like a bit of a distraction. It seems like it it undermines the message around focusing on the business day to day. So I'm, I'm super self-conscious about it. Uh, you know, like, yeah, I'm, I'm very kind of wary of involving the rest of the business in it. So I, I worked with... Um, a new contractor that I hadn't worked before, very talented chap from the, the jailbreaking community. My question was, you know, is there a way to get us great image quality? Uh, that was that was really the question I had because we, we were just about to send everyone home uh, because of the COVID uh, experience. This is something that had been on my list for a while. Can you use cameras as an iPhone? Uh, but essentially we sent the team home and everyone looked terrible. And they'd all got the latest Macs and PCs and we had expensive webcams, but the team didn't look like they really did look. And so I just wanted to, to get a high fidelity way of seeing them. And I, I spoke to a bunch of photographers and what they did is they used DSLR. So a DSLR is a proper professional camera. You can get one for a grand, but you need a lens. And if you, know, if you want to properly be in the DSLR club, you, you probably need to spend three or four thousand pounds or thousand um, dollars. And equipping everyone in the company with one of them and using bad software and awkward cables was just a bit too much. I was on a personal quest to try and see the team properly without spending tens of thousands of dollars on cameras. And how large uh, a team are we talking about right now? 20 something people in the company. Again, Aiden, this came out of a very simple, this is a need. This is something that, hey, there's gotta be a better way. I, I, wanna, I, I want to fix this, right? Yeah. I, I was just infuriated. There, there are no good webcams. We, we could not find one. Since I had that opinion, I spent a lot, lot more time looking at webcams and buying webcams, and we own all of them. And there, there just are no good ones. If, if you want to look like you look in real life, uh, the only option is a smartphone or a DSLR. Of course, that doesn't matter to everyone, and that's fine. But, you know, I was aware that iPhones were used uh, to capture broadcast quality video. You know, they're in Billie Eilish's music video. They've been used for Lady Gaga's music video. They have remarkable image capture capabilities. And it just seemed a pity to be buying rubbish consumer electronics that didn't work properly when 
We had a load of old iPhones and most people have a phone in their pocket that could be used as a better camera. So it was really sort of intense irritation that I couldn't get good quality images from, from the team as I saw them that made me want to build this thing. How long from that intense irritation to, you know, there's got to be a better way to the first iteration? Yeah, it took us maybe about two months without any real sleep. Uh, I think halfway through that, I kind of did a check-in with the board and they liked it. So I continued to spend time on it. But it was about two months until we had something rough that we could use internally. We started talking about it online and opened up a beta program. We, we were hoping to get maybe, you know, a couple of hundred or a thousand people interested. And in the end, after a couple of weeks, we capped the beta list, I think at five and a half or 6,000 people because there were just too many. Like it was yeah. the right idea at the right time. And they seem to like it. It happened right at the beginning of the shutdown for the pandemic, right? We happened to be exploring the idea before the shutdown. So my timing wasn't good. And then my timing became good. Have there been different releases on this? We shipped it. Uh, we're on 1.3 at the moment. Uh, we've, we've got a whole lot planned all the way up to 1.7 and then some exciting plans for two. I guess what's happened in the meantime is we, we've, we've really kind of built a bigger team around it put a lot more energy into building camo as well as building our existing products picked up a lot of users uh, and a lot of really interesting people doing all sorts of curious things with it which has been deeply flattering what are some of those curious things well we've got people uh teaching brain surgery and eye surgery and, and various things like that we've got uh a lot of fantastic musicians, preachers, fitness instructors uh, using it to sort of do high fidelity demonstrations of what it is they do. Uh, at the Bodleian uh, at Oxford University, they're using camo to uh, examine ancient manuscripts remotely. There's a page on NASA's website recommending camo for use with your telescope and for use looking at eclipses and things like that. There are all these things that we, you know, I mean, we've, we've got a bunch of stuff of people that, you know, Apple, Microsoft, Facebook, Google, Amazon, you name it, using Camo. And that's lovely and in all of the kind of top universities. But I love it when we hear a story about something unusual. Like we've, we've got people doing British Sign Language and they're using Camo because their hands are a lot clearer when they use it. And just I, I love those use cases. The, those are interesting, interesting niches. Everyone's still using it other than, I think, really the, the telescope thing as a webcam, really, right? But just more a, a more robust, high-definition webcam. Yeah, I mean, in, in some cases, it's a document camera. So, you know, we're, we're used to, in some cases, there might be a multicam set up where they're, might be a rabbi uh, talking to a congregation and a camera, but also a document cam running down the Torah or, you know, another document where people are following along or singing or what have you. It's, it's quite helpful in those situations. Uh, in the brain surgery case, you know, camo is looking at a brain rather than looking at a surgeon. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it, it tends to be kind of a, a connected camera for a person or, or for a subject they're looking at with their machine. Is there anything that's keeping you up at night with excitement? Something that, and maybe the better question is, Aiden, what's pissing you off right now? Because it seems when something pisses you off, then the innovation is going to happen. So that's probably, I should probably ask you that. What's pissing you off, Aiden? I've only got more pissed off since I started building it. We, we found... We found a thread and we're pulling at that thread and video, you know, I thought video online was done when Skype got released 15 years ago. Uh, but, I, you know, I was simply a user of it then. The more I've looked at it now, the more I think we are at the very 
very beginning of audio and video online. Very little has been explored. There's a huge amount of room for innovation and of high quality products. And people are building some fantastic things. And I love a lot of products out there, but we are right at the beginning. This is the tip of the iceberg. And so much of it could be better and so many things are missing. So yeah, I'm, I'm furious. <laughs> Watch out, everybody. Aiden is furious. Is there something out there that really you look at and you go, man, yes, that that is so well thought out, so well executed. It's, it's such Is there something out there that just really gets you going? I mean, there are a lot of products out there that, that, that I do like. Uh, I'm, I'm very interested in the idea of luxury software. And there are a few people exploring that. What does that mean? Uh, Luxury so software. What is that? If you look at your Mac and the icons along the bottom of your dock, uh, there's a whole bunch of things. There. There's a notes app, there's a maps app, there's email, all those things. Those are all really kind of built around software patterns that someone came up with 40 years ago. And for each of those cases, there's someone now rethinking radically how it should work in 2021. And a couple of those products have emerged. So there are new calendars like Vimcal or Undock uh, and the like. There are new email clients like Superhuman. There are radically new ways of approaching these. And, you know, a lot of people say, hey, I can get my email for free. I can get my calendar for free. I don't want to pay for that. But there are also this new wave of products where people will pay quite a lot of money to have a real amazing rethought software experience. And I'm absolutely fascinated by this. I think all of these things have gone unexamined for too long and, and there's just, there's room to rethink it. You wouldn't call it necessarily bespoke software. No. Does it distill down to building a better mousetrap? Uh, in part, it's a different model and it's a different market. So, you know, they're going to charge 30 to 50 bucks a month. So it, it's going to be very divisive. A bunch of users are just not interested. There's going to be a smaller body of users that will pay a lot of money to access a very, very high quality product that's been rethought. And I just think that's, that's a fascinating proposition. It's going to have trickle-down effects into the free products. But there, yeah, there, there's some really interesting things there. And, and I think it's remarkable that, you know, email and calendars and note-taking has not really sort of been radically re-examined for, for a long time. And, and, you know, the apps that, that come on your Mac are great, and I love the guys that are building them, and they're doing really good stuff. And, of course, they don't have a remit to, to go out and make wacky changes. But I quite like the wacky changes. How about you? You feeling those wacky changes? It's pretty cool to be able to channel things that frustrate us into something that becomes a useful and practical tool. You can learn more about Aiden, his passionate and driven team, and the solutions they've created at reincubate.com. That's R-E-I-N-C-U-B-A-T-E.com. Thanks for hanging with Aiden and me. I hope you'll join me again with new episodes dropping every Tuesday at 3 p.m. Mountain Time. If you enjoy No Bed of Roses, and I hope you do, may I ask you consider sharing the link to the show with your friends and family and shout us out from the highest mountaintops and across your social channels. We'd certainly appreciate it. Until next time, stay safe and remember... You'll find No Bed of Roses wherever you find fine podcasts. And now at our new website, 
nobedofrosespodcast.com. Thanks. See you soon. Bye.